This episode will show you different sides of the tech world. The one where you research and apply algorithms, where you get super excited about image recognition and AI-generated art, and the one where you support social change actors, aka the AI for good movement. My guest for this episode is, quite naturally, Julien Cornubis. Julien is an honorary associate professor at UCL. He was an early researcher at DeepMind, where he designed its early algorithms. He then worked as a director of research at Element AI, where he built and led the London office and the AI for Good unit. After his theoretical work on Bayesian methods, he had the privilege to work with the NHS to diagnose eye diseases, with Amnesty International to quantify abuse on Twitter, and to find destroyed villages in Darfur with forensic architecture to identify tear gas canisters used against civilians and with many other organizations. Other than that, Julien is an avid reader and loves dark humor and picking up his son from school at the hour of daddies and mummies, as he says. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 71, recorded September 6, 2022. <music> Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, for any info about the podcast, learnbaystats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbaystats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbaystats.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo control? science like I'm Richard Feynman. Hello, my dear Bayesians. Yep, it's my favorite time again, the one where I get to thank my brand new supporters on Patreon. So, very officially, thank you so much, Or Dueck, Pavel Dusek, and Paul Cox for joining the full posterior and good Bayesian tiers. You made my day. And Paul, make sure to send a picture when you get your exclusive LBS merch. Okay, now, let's dive into the science of art generation with Julien Cornubis. Julien Cornubis, bienvenue dans Learning Bayesian Statistics. Merci beaucoup, bonjour à tous, merci de m'avoir ici. <laughs> so, apparently it's an episode in French. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. Hi everyone, thanks for having me here today. <laughs> it was dear. Yeah, Julien, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Very happy to have you on the show. I have so many questions for you. 
I have the feeling I'm going to learn a lot. So let's dive in. As usual, with your origin story, how did you come to the math and <laughs> stats worlds? Oh boy. Well, let, let me try and live up to the, to, to the high bar you've set up. Basically, I trained originally as a computer science engineer, a coder. I've been coding since I'm 12. I uh, was into assembly x86, removing shareware limitations back in high school. So I decided I wanted to go to go that way. I went to an engineering school in France, specialized in computer science, went to algorithmic competitions, uh, the ACM, ICPC, loved coding, loved formalizing problems, uh, problem solving. But then I realized, hey, this is all really fun, but the world is really noisy and stochastic. I'm going to need more math and probabilities and statistics if I want to apply all these really cool algorithms in the real world. So I decided to, in parallel, do a master in mathematical statistics, which required speeding up on the, speeding up on the math a lot that the year I started coffee, <laughs> and then followed with a, a PhD that actually merged my algorithmic side and mathematical side, so computational statistics in sequential Monte Carlo. And that's, uh, that's how I was, uh, I was in the field. So. Not entirely straight, but not completely sinuous either. Yeah, you are on the on the side of the people who started coding like extremely early. <laughs> not as young as I would have wanted, but it was it, it was fun. I, I like coding, and I, I keep thinking in of math and um, and statistics in mostly algorithmic viewpoint. As a result, that's interesting. Now I think you are the second French person to come on the show. The first one was Rémi Louf. And uh, he started very early also his programming career. So I kind of feel like the black sheep here. Like I started when I was 27. <laughs> so, you know. Well, actually, congrats on you. You know, it's much harder to do it that way than when you're just running really young. So, yeah, well done. <laughs> yeah, thankfully, it's not like, uh, you know, dancing. You can still be a professional programmer if you start at 27. Whereas if you want to be a professional dancer, cannot start at 27. Well, there you're ruining my hopes now. You're breaking my heart, Alexandre. Cool. So that's math, etc. But for, for Bayesian methods in particular, do you remember how you first got introduced to them? Yeah, actually, it was during university where I got involved in a project with a, with a professor there. We were working on instant coffee and detecting fraud in instant coffee. It was a joint project with uh, Nestle, food manufacturer, and they were trying to establish norms to prevent, well, to detect when instant coffee has been enriched with extra parched or extra sugar. So we had to do a mixture of Gaussians on the population of a Bavarian population where you measure the glucose and the xylose content in um, off-the-shelf store-bought instant coffee and try to figure out, oh, where is the main mode which we gather are the honest producers and where are the other modes and where do you put the limits to quantify what should be labeled as coffee and what, what shouldn't. So it was really fun actually to go and take, you know, just a random random usual object, put it through math and discover a lot about the, the world behind it of trying to defraud coffee, of trying to, and all that through, you know, a two-dimensional vector and, uh, and a bunch of Gaussians and uh, Bayesian analysis. Was it in the, like at university or was it already one of your first uh, jobs? No, no, it was in university as a side, a side project for fun with a, a teacher with whom I got along really well. I was like, hey, do you want to collaborate on that? Like, sure, bring it on. Well, that sounds like fun. And, and then, well, I'm skipping ahead here, but 
I mean, you've worked at DeepMind for uh, four years, and that was in the in the two thousands, if I remember correctly. Yeah, two thousand and twelve. I joined actually. Oh, okay, so twenty tens. Damn, we can already say the twenty tens. They, they they are done already. We're in the roaring twenties or the crashing twenties. Depends. Yeah, exactly. The sneezing twenties, if you like, because it's more COVID. <laughs> so yeah, it's basically you worked at DeepMind for four years, and in particular, you you were focused on health research. I'm curious about that. Like, can you tell us? Why and how Bayesian stats were helpful here? At DeepMind, yes. Uh, so I said four years at DeepMind. I joined, we were 36 employees. I was a fifth researcher there. So we were a really tiny startup. And I said four years up to, you know, after the Google acquisition. And when I left late 2016, we were 400 employees. The first two years, actually, I was in the fundamental research team. I was trying to bring some Bayesian love to convolutional neural networks and to deep learning, try to see if we could know, bring some uh, some uncertainty uh, measurement there and be uh, a little bit more statistical-minded in their approach. And then the Google acquisition went through and, uh, well, DeepMind founders and I spoke and, well, okay, now we have the, the resource to go into healthcare, which is something that was close to my heart. I had done internships and consulting there in vaccine developments and uh, experimental design and sequential experimental design and the like in parallel with my studies. So now we have the resource to go into healthcare, and that's where I transition 100% to the applied part to create the DeepMind Health Research Team, and mostly with uh, Veterans Affairs, DeepMind uh, partnership with the Moorfields Eye Hospital, and a few others. What's helpful there, there's quite a few parts. Obviously, DeepMind is a deep learning and reinforcement learning shop, and patient deep learning it was still a very nascent research field at the time. However, what did carry through, even when not using a formally Bayesian method, was the focus of uncertainty, focus on uncertainty, sorry. When you go into healthcare, you have to be extremely aware of the risks and the probabilities of things going well or going wrong. You want, you need to quantify that. You also need to think in terms of decision-making, so some of the work we did, decision support to clinicians on in ophthalmology, there's a whole matrix where you weigh the different risks and different type of risk and whether you got it, you know, having a false positive versus having a false negatives or the different types of degrees of disease and how much worse one error is than another. And this actually ties back to the very roots of, you know, Bayesian analysis, which is deeply rooted in uh, in decision-making. I love Jim Berger's book. I had the, the pleasure once of, of working in Jim Berger's lab, SAMSI, in North Carolina. And Jim Berger has his book from 1989, Statistical Decision Theory, which is extremely Bayesian in his thinking. I think it's probably Bayesian Statistical Decision Theory. If Jim hears it, I hope he forgives me for butchering the name of his book. So yeah, there, there's very much the same emphasis on thinking about the risk and about the, the cost of your decisions. And that pervades throughout in, in healthcare. I can definitely guess that, that healthcare um, requires a lot of uncertainty estimation and also like probably decision-making and cost functions are extremely important, right? Like, because like if, if the cost is, well, someone can die, of course, it's way, way higher, like way, way higher cost than in most optimization problems that you can have. Absolutely. And you also, even if you, you know, clinician, when you train on data from clinicians, 
not all clinicians agree. So there is some disagreement even in the data, even in a supervised training problem. There is uncertainty in the very labels you're getting. How do you handle that? So there's, you know, there's different ways. And that's, for me, that's still the very Bayesian way of thinking there. Hmm. And I like to think, you know, rather than I did my PhD when the, you know, the, the, the war between Bayesian versus frequencies were still, you know, boiling. But I really prefer to think in terms of, hey, it's all thinking in terms of uh, taking a probabilistic view of things. I did my PhD on Bayesian stats, but in a way, I was probably the most frequentist Bayesian in that I was working on Monte Carlo methods and conversion theorems for Monte Carlo methods, which is where you can afford to be entirely uh, can afford to be entirely frequentist as you're doing central limit theorems on uh, the number of samples you simulate. So I sometimes feel a, an imposter syndrome of, oh, am I a right Bayesian? Uh, even though I was doing during my PhD, I was actually doing uh, frequentist uh, thinking applied to Bayesian algorithms. So yeah, really think about it in terms of probabilistic view on on modeling, on statistics, on you know algorithms generally. Yeah, and I'm curious, like the people you were working with and who were not statisticians, how good of a grasp they had of the probabilistic way of thinking, and like, I'm curious how intuitive that was for them or how challenging maybe it was. It was quite fantastic actually. We were you know we were very lucky to work with. Clinicians, sorry, I mean, I'm, you led the gap, you led the hesitations. <laughs> sorry, Pierre Skeen from uh, University College London, who's a, a clinician uh, with a deep, deep interest in machine learning. And, he, you know, he kept asking for more, more details and understanding more and more is um, the, the algorithm that we were developing. We we're working very closely together to show him every step of, okay, here's what we're developing, here's what it knows, what it doesn't know. He was giving us constant feedback. Oh, that's really exciting. Oh, that part, eh, maybe not that useful. Or, oh, we have this other type of data. Would that be helpful to you? Or, oh, actually, you know, with this kind of problem, be careful of this and this direction or this and these issues with the data. That was really a, a privilege to work so closely with a, with a domain expert. And I think it was a really big factor in, in the success. Now, to answer your question about how familiar was he with the probabilistic view or the Bayesian view or even the machine learning view, well, it's incredible how much he has, he dove into the topic. He's actually the one who reached out to DeepMind originally saying, hey, I've seen your algorithms out there. Hmm, we have these problematics here and we have these anonymized data here. Could we do some research together? Is there something we could do there? Uh, so yeah, you know, great, great, great savviness. And of course, you know, you wouldn't follow an equation at least not when we started together. It's the same way I wouldn't follow, you know, one of the anatomy courses that, you know, that he was giving there. But his intuition and the, 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 the natural grasp of uncertainty that he sees every day in diagnosis was, you know, absolutely there. So that was on the, on the part of the, like the clinicians. Mm -hmm. On your part, I'm wondering, during this whole, you know, experience and projects, which, like, was there a main difficulty that you encountered and what did you learn from it? Let's say the positive side, I learned a lot because <laughs> there were many opportunities to learn and, and difficulties encountered. And actually, the well, you know, I could dive into the quality of the data or the absolute, you know, the absolute imperative for ensuring proper anonymization, but what this really drove home for me is 
the whole work that goes around the science into having an impact with your study. You know, back then we were working on this project back in 2015. We knew that this new imagery technique, which is called optical coherence tomography, OCT for short, which is a 3D scan of your eye, for very cheap imager goes for 30,000 pounds compared to the millions of pounds that go into a, a regular MRI scanner, for example. So we knew this would be hitting the high street in every optician or every glass seller everywhere in the country, in the UK and in France. Fast forward 2020, that's indeed the case. You've got in bus stops the advertisement for the local optician, Specsavers, for example, the chain. Hey, come get your OCT there. Getting a 3D image of the back of your eye rather than just a single photography. So we know this modality was coming. We had the algorithms ready and we developed the algorithms for to aid decision and to aid early diagnostics and triage based on this extremely rich new modality of data. But we and then we've got you know a nature paper for that. Hooray as a researcher, I can tick that box, a nature paper check. <laughs> but the reality is that this didn't make it to a product. These, all these algorithms that we have, well, they're not used in that optician. Bittersweet in that we don't have the impact that we set out to have originally. And for me, the lesson there really about thinking hard about, okay, how, what is a organizational environment where you do your work and what within this organization and with the different players that are involved there, what is the path to actually having your algorithms used by people and who is in that path and what are the incentives there? So it's almost, damn, it's almost as if politics and organizations were, uh, were important. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting because it's also, you know, the flip side is also that this is also how you get to be able to work on such projects is because organizations get created that allow to mobilize talent and resources to get to work on that. And oh yeah, the managed of the visibility that make people, clinicians come to you and work on this. That's the flip side there. And learning to navigate that has been a, a really, you know, a really big lesson for this kind of, for, from this project. And something, you know, I keep learning, learning every day. For sure. And I mean, that, that does re resonate with, with my personal experience also. And, and something that I, I was interested in when I, you know, read about your profile and, and why I thought it would be interesting to have you on the show is that, so you, you had this focus on health, like AI for health. And then afterwards, uh, after DeepMind, you, you're still focused on AI for, for good, as we could say, like, and actually, I think you still work regularly with Amnesty International. And so I was curious because these are fields where, you know, the association with statistics doesn't jump to mind. <laughs> and even to the contrary, I, I could guess that people not familiar with statistics and modeling, you know, could see that from with a, a negative eye, you know, mm -hmm. like, oh, it's like statistics is going to like take the human factor out of everything, you know, uh, things like that, that I'm sure you hear a lot as I do. And so can you tell us what that work looks like actually and how that's helpful? Well, absolutely. I mean, for the term AI for good, you know, we use that because it's what the United Nations use for this whole stream of work. But we've got to be very, very careful about it because when you say AI for good, you can quickly fall into tech savior syndrome, tech so solutionism. Yeah, and also that means that that if you don't work in that field, that means you're doing AI for bad. <laughs> That's a bit yeah, weird, you know. Well, the other thing is that 
AI, machine learning, statistics, any technology, heck, even a stick is deeply dual use. You know, a stick, you can use it to lever a rock and help your pal that's stuck under it, or you can, you know, hit your pal on the head with that. Not your pal so much more anymore. So there's this deep dual use. And I know that on my scale, I can't, you know, I can't do much against, or there's not much as an individual scale that I can do against the negative use of, uh, of AI. What I, you know, beside making all the ethical reviews around what I do, but what I can do is make sure that these tools, whether they be statistics, whether they be machine learning, whether they be anything, go to used and to help the people who know the real problems. And those people, you find them, well, in hospitals, you found them at Amnesty International, you found them in NGOs, you know. They are those who really know what's going on and what needs to be solved. So my, my work there is really, how can I help those? And what do they need? And in the case of, of Amnesty, you know, how statistics work with Amnesty, well, you know, Amnesty, they're fantastic campaigners and they do really amazing qualitative work. They go visit the victims of uh, human rights abuse, they get their stories, they understand the issues, the different incentives. What I provide, and me and others work with them, is try to provide the quantitative aspect. So one example that is probably the project of my career that I'm the proudest of is the Troll Patrol project with Amnesty, which was to quantify the amount of abuse against women on Twitter, and especially women journalists and politicians. And I worked with you know, human rights experts who had documented, interviewed journalists and politicians for the abuse they were receiving. And we set up a whole study based on crowdsourcing, on getting tweets looked at by thousands of volunteers and labeling them and saying, oh, well, this is abusive in this specific sense that is defined for the study, whereas this is not abusive, but still problematic, or this one is fine. With all these being defined, terms being defined by sociologists working with Amnesty International and us providing the statistical analysis behind that. You know, how do you, how do you even sample that? How do you analyze the results of a crowd? What are the, the, the ways you've got to be careful? What are the results and how much can you trust these results? And adding these numbers behind, behind the story helped characterize the type of abuse they were getting, who it was targeted at. There's a, a really prominent journalist who then emailed the organizer at Amnesty said, oh, thank you. I mean, sometimes I don't, you know, there's the obvious violence, direct violence threat, but there's this constant unease on Twitter. And now with the results, I understand why, because there's this level of problematic, aggressive content, but that are not abusive in the strictest sense of the world, as in they don't violate the abusive definition in the Twitter terms of service. But we see the constant barrage there. So all this quantization really helped. And actually when the report that we released, I think it was the 19th of December, 2018, when this report came out from Amnesty uh, with, my, with my team, which had both the qualitative and the quantitative aspect, that got in many newspapers and uh, Twitter got renamed the Harvey Weinstein of social media. And that was in, in the full beginning of the Me Too movement. And it had for effect to overnight get Twitter stock to crash by $5 billion, 16% loss in Twitter stock price. Which again, I'm not there to delete Twitter stock price, you know, that's not what we set out for. And they recovered within a few weeks, but it translated the problem of abuse online into a monetary unit that executives at Twitter and in other companies 
can really understand and really resonate with. So this is for me, you know, a, a great personal success of having this tangible impact by, again, bringing the quantitative tools to, to activists and to the, mother, the, the, ma- the masters of qualitative thinking. The numbers in another project with Amnesty, the numbers we, we counted again, we, we crowdsourcing. Uh, so, you know, I've just reused the same old, same old thinking. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we counted the number of uh, video surveillance cameras, public video surveillance cameras in New York City. And thanks again to the thousands of volunteers who labeled these images. And these numbers and the, the statistical analysis I did with a few others helped get, you know, the numbers that both when into visualization to make people realize how much surveilled you might be, but also went into legal proceedings of amnesty against the New York Police Department, which in August uh, this year, uh, Amnesty won to force the New York Police Department to publish more about their surveillance and their surveillance capabilities. So again, it's just a matter of bringing stats to help the, the activists in this case or to help the doctors in other cases. It's very much the same thing there. Yeah, I love that because um like, I mean, I do think that these kind of analysis are going to be done anyways. And so they might as well be done in a scientific way so that the numbers then mean something and can be used for further action. And that's something that's usually not very well done in the political realm. So I'm always all for like more robust and serious statistical job getting percolated into the political science topics. And there's one thing that's really exciting when you, you know, you do your analysis in the most rigorous possible way in such an application that you also publish the methodology and you're like, oh, usually, you know, if I write a paper, an academic paper, oh, if I find a flaw in it, mm, the reviewer will bash me or I'll look for a fool. Well, here actually is, hmm, if, I, if there is a flaw in it, the whole, you know, the whole campaign can be derailed in that if, you know, the NYPD or Twitter is able to say, oh, look, Amnesty has made a fool for themselves, they've grossly overinflated this or that number, well, that would not look good. So it gives you extra motivation to be extremely rigorous and publish your methodology in full detail and make sure you cross uh, and dot every, you know, tease our eyes like you would do on in, in other studies, but there you know exactly why you're doing it. Actually, now that you, you talked a bit about... Um about AI topics and things like that. Very recent topic that you just told me about before we record, and I'd like to actually talk about it now because I think it's it's actually interesting, especially in, in relation to, uh, to Bayesian stats. So there is this new model called stable diffusion that you just like told me about before we started the show. So can you introduce listeners to what that is and why it was such a wow factor for you. Yeah, I was speechless for three hours this morning. I was going through blog posts after blog posts of experimenting with the method myself. So stable diffusion. I guess it's good we didn't record this morning, right? Because, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> because a speechless guest, in my experience, is not a very good guest. It yeah. would be useless, right? <laughs> well, the stable diffusion is a generative model for images. Enter your text, describe what you want it to generate, what you want it to draw, and it draws it in very, you know, types of drawing that you might ask, including photorealistic. The amount, the precision of the drawings, the amount amount of understanding of the the, the, the language you use is just mind-blowing. What's even more important is that, well, actually, yeah, let's dwell a little on the technical prowess there. These are 
technology that even you know two years ago with us you know there's absolutely no way this can ever be done you know when i joined DeepMind originally in 2012 we were trying to predict what was the action to take you know atari video games so we were doing essentially logistic regression on 30,000 input variables representing the pixels in, in an image and even there i was like wow 30,000 we're pushing it and that's just to analyze the image now we're actually generating full resolution images on completely abstract topics. Uh, you can ask it to be, you know, you can be extremely descriptive and say, oh, I want a city in the sky with a beautiful lit starry sky and the cities must have these buildings and you can be extremely descriptive like that. Or as I, as I experimented with it, you can just ask something much more abstract, like imagine the most horrific fear-inducing picture for a human and it generated an actually <laughs> really scary face of some half zombie, half, uh, well, whatever. And all this is not in, in realistic, you know, in realistic ways. Back in 2013, with some colleagues at Demon, we were trying to generate faces. Then we were getting a modicum uh, of success on 20 pixel by 20 pixel, uh, grayscale uh, sort of faces. And now we have this fully generating, not just of faces, as has been seen in the GAN, Generative Adversarial Networks, a couple of years ago, but now a full scenes of absolutely any type of description. And I must say, this is not something I would know how to generate with a hierarchical Bayesian model. There is a connection in that oftentimes in, in, in Bayesian statistics, you know, we'll, we'll write generative models. I will take a generative approach, describe the mechanism by which a model that of the mechanism by which the data might arise. So we are creating new observations. Now, this is it, but without such an explicit model, but just with gigantic, extremely deep uh, neural networks, we're talking you know, several billions of parameters. So it's not your 20 dimension, I'm starting to be in a high dimension, important sampling type studies like I used to do years ago. It's, we're talking tw inference in a 20 billion parameter space with a lot of optimization at the core. Yeah, so how is that done? Like, you looked a bit into that, like... I started to. Can you tell the, the listeners, like, like, basically what's the difference with the classic Bayesian models, for instance, that people are, are used to? And like, yeah, I'm basically, what, <laughs> how, how is that done? You said it's a deep neural network, something like that, so... And this is how we turn the podcast into a 20-hour Coursera course. <laughs> in, Brace in yourselves. Nutshell. Yeah, well, in a nutshell, in deep learning, generally, there is a a move away from having an explicit models with explicit unknowns and more towards here's a massive stack of operations, matrix operations, nonlinearity, and keep iterating, with in a few cases a bit of inductive bias, which is fancy for saying, oh, we inject a little bit of what we know of the real world. So in a convolutional neural network working with image, we inject a little bit of notion of locality, but not that much really. And then we just optimize to minimize a certain loss, let's say the L2 loss, between your examples and your reproductions. And now that's exactly what you do. You put the text in the form of embeddings, you know, representation, a vector representation of your text. Uh, that's on the input. At the output, you've got the image. And you try to just have this gigantic series of operations, which are parameterized by weights. We're talking billions of weights. And you run an optimizer in this 
billion dimensional space of parameters to find one that does a really good function approximation. I'm oversimplifying and I'm sure my deep learning colleagues will uh, forgive me for that. But in, in a nutshell, that's the idea. So think of it as a really, really deep logistic regression, but where you have so many more, you know, so many more layers of, of logistic regression on top of another. If I want to be oversimplistic, where they're at this stage, they probably don't forgive me anymore. But uh, that, that's the idea. Now, in the term of stable diffusion, there is a tie with Bayesian that they're based on diffusion processes, such as the one that inspires some of the Monte Carlo algorithms, such as Langevin Monte Carlo algorithms. So there are similar mathematical concepts behind it. Now, I won't, don't want to go further because I haven't read as much in the paper because it was out just a few, you know, recently, a few days ago. But what's really important when we look at, you know, talking about the impact you can have, that this generative model, these stable diffusions, have been released in the entirety. The whole trained model has been open sourced. Anyone can download the trained model, run the model for any purpose whatsoever, build a business out of it, run it on their laptop, generate whatever beautiful art, generate whatever illustration for a magazine, whatever fake image that they want. You know, everything is there for the, for the doing. Unlike previous generative models, which were A, not as good, and be carefully controlled, such as OpenAI DALI 2, which was made in beta first for, for quite a few months to a few select people, and only recently came out as a software as a service. So you can ask it to generate, but you do not get access to the weights. Here, the whole thing is there for anyone to, to download and to use, which has meant that in six days, people have already built you know, Photoshop plugins based on that and new features in software is based on that because there is also a way to do image to image, do a very crude sketch of what you want, a description of what you would like it to look like, and boom, here you get it. It is, it is really stunning. Some people are winning talent competitions like, you know, artistic state fair on digital art without knowing how to draw thanks to that. But also you've got illustrators who are starting to say, hey, Hold on, you use The Economist or The Atlantic, I believe. You just run a story with a generated image rather than commissioning a, a graphist, a graphic artist. What about our jobs? So now we're in a place which is, well, you know, we, we, we kept, you know, they, they kept being saying that, oh, the best, you know, Dory technology is coming. Yes, but, you know, humans will get the creative job instead. And don't worry, worry about, uh, you know, it will be a hard transition, but there's, there's room for the human there. Well, no, actually, we were having creativity done by algorithms. And you could still argue, well, actually, you have a human describing and doing the imagination of what they want to see and guiding the algorithm. So, yeah, the centaur hypothesis uh, still holds true. But I don't think many of us were imagining this to, to this extent. And actually, it gives rise. Yeah, sorry. I, I could ramble for hours about that. Please do stop me. <laughs> no, that's interesting. And and yeah, so first, thanks for giving that description of, of the model like that on the fly. And I think listeners will appreciate to hear more about like, yeah, this distinction between like basically page and hierarchical model, for instance, and a deep neural network, as we're talking about here. If you guys also are interested in like how about neural networks done in a Bayesian way. I interviewed uh, Lisa Semenova. I think it was episode 21. Very good episode. We talked about also GPs because it turns out GPs and neural networks are related. And um, it seems to be a law of the universe. In the end, everything is a GP. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I'll put um, a link to the in, in the show notes about um, to this episode. 
Yeah, so thanks for that. And yeah, in general, like, I'm curious about what you think these these changes, like you, you talked a bit about that, like from a societal standpoint. And I find that super interesting because with technology, I'm always, there is always, you know, a voice in the back of my head when I hear people making like huge you know, predictions about what this will change, like, especially when it's like, well, it will, like, jobs will be automated, but uh, creative jobs are okay, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, we don't really know that. Like, it's just like the history of technology is, is very hard to predict, you know? It's a bit like a like financial crisis, right? You know there will be one, but you don't know where and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you talked about that a bit already. And also from a statistical perspective, I'm interested here in your like mathematical and statistical background, what do you think that could change for like the modeling perspective, like the modeling part? Do you think that means the structured models will become less important and it will be more that kind of very free models in a way? Or do you think both will actually work together or that they actually answer different needs? As a good Bayesian, I'll tell you that I know that I don't know. My, my posterior is extremely, extremely vague, uh, posterior distribution. So I'll be careful about do, doing, you know, big prediction. I can, I can speak about what I observe already, which is that deep learning requires at the moment a huge amount of data. You could imagine generative models for proteins, for even for observations, say for, for coffee, uh, you know, level of xylose and glucose to go back to our original d- d- discussion. But there's not that much data to train on. And we're talking here hundreds of millions of images to train on to get these this kind of, uh, of models. We're, or, or more, actually, I should check the numbers. So forgive me for the inaccuracy, but we're in this order of magnitude, you know, maybe up to a factor of 10. It's a really, really, really large data set, which we don't have in other fields. But there is a huge amount of fields where we can't apply these methods at the moment. There is an, a strong advocacy for trying to go towards more data efficiency. And that can do, be done in several ways, some which mean incorporating more structure, known structure about the problem into the modeling phase. And well, one of the best ways to do that is precisely through hierarchical models or explicit modeling. So in a way, that's where there is an ample room to, to work is when you have much more tailored and, and smaller data regime. It's also when you want to have a clear, you know, we were talking about safety and, and quantization of uncertainty. If you want to have some measure of how much uncertainty you have, it's at the moment still harder to do with neural nets, if only because we don't know what are the failure modes. Deep learning is being very empirical about these gigantic beasts that we train. I mean, I think this model took something like $600,000 to train, which is still rather small, surprisingly, compared to other models. But, you know, $600,000 of compute is not something you can... Oh yeah, let's let's sample it ten times to get uh, a lot of different a lot of different outputs. I mean, you can, but it depends on your bank bank account, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you were to tell me that I can, I'm gonna check my bank account real quick because you seem to know things that don't. <laughs> but yeah, no, so, so there, there's a much more empirical approach. There's the mathematical analysis is also much harder. Uh, you know, there's no convergent theorems on on neural nets. And heck, you know, I used to be oh. That's not proper. Well, heck, I'm saying that works. We just can't quantify how much it works. And, you know, if it works, don't diss it. It does things that I would not know how to do. 
But that means we don't know how to quantify the limits of it and the risks we, we, we are taking with, with them. So there will be some need for very critical thinking around these models. And I don't know, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are aware of, for example, the fiasco around uh, Timnit Gebru being fired from Google last year, precisely for criticizing and studying closely the limits of large language models, of which stable diffusion is a kind of um, a kind of offshoot. So it, it is a very touchy topic, and that's where we go back again to the deep link between our technology, what we do as statistician, and how it gets used, and why it gets used for, and who uses it, and who owns it. And for me, that that is really the key. And I'd rather do a model that's owned by Amnesty International than owned by a large organization whose priorities can change over time and whose incentives are not necessarily aligned with that of the general, unless it's a general common good. That's where it gets really, really important. And I, I believe that as scientists, as statisticians, that we have a responsibility for our tools, for how they're used. And we have a, a duty to think about, hey, what could go wrong, you know, if it's being used? And of course, with what you go, could go wrong, you, you might never work or anything. So there's a balance there, but you you have a duty to ask at least yourself the questions. Yeah, it's super interesting. And so for listeners, I put into the show notes the blog post you sent me about stable diffusion that explains and goes into into the details of the model and people can try yeah, it. Simon the... Willison blog post is really eye-opening and f- do follow the links in there towards a lot of examples of the use of, uh, of stable diffusion. Uh, funny thing, actually, we're seeing, from a t- technical point of view, we're seeing the rise of uh, prompt engineering. There's a whole field now of in which words do you formulate your request so that your model gives you the most pretty output? Which is something I would never have imagined. This is purely how, you know, what text do you give? Yeah, sounds like choosing your priors. Yeah, I mean, yes, but with even less math in it. So, okay, I'm like, why did I go through all these years of learning math to get there? <laughs> but you know what? It works, so don't knock it. It's quite remarkable. It's At the same time, it feels weird because we make models that we then have to learn how to use. That not that supposed to be the, the, the other way around? Like we build it, therefore we know how it works. Well, not quite anymore. I, f- I find that absolutely fa- fascinating, if a little scary. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes me think that'd be awesome to choose your priors like that. Like imagine you could prompt, you know, and you'd be, you could be like, like, instead of saying, I want a normal distribution with mu equals two and sigma equals 10, which you understand, I understand, but non-statisticians don't. Imagine you could like prompt business people and they could say, well, I want a distribution who looks like, you know, a bell curve and like usually it's around two and it can go up to that, like that number. And then the computer could tell you, okay, so you want a normal distribution mu equals two sigma equals n. Automated uh, prior elicitation. Yeah, I'd love that. And that's something we are really curious about and we think a lot about it at PyMC Labs and in the PyMC team in, com- in, in general because that's something when you teach people and also when you, when you work with clients, eliciting the priors is always something that can be complicated and intimidating for beginners. So we're always trying to find easier ways. We have that new function now, now in, in PyMC which finds the priors based on your contr- constraint. Mm-hmm. Nice. But you still have to tell it the, the function you want, you know. Like you tell it, I want a gamma distribution 
with 95% of probability mass between that and that. And then PyMC tells you, okay, so you want a gamma with alpha equals blah, blah, and beta equals another thing. But then like the next step would be that. <laughs> I don't know I want a gamma. And I'm going to put all of us Bayesian statisticians out of a job. Don't say so. <laughs> well, you still you still need to parameterize the model afterwards. So, you know, like this, the model structure, you still need it. It's like, that's the hard part. But then if you could like parameterize the priors like that, that'd be awesome. Because then you don't need to know you want a gamma. And in a way, you don't really need to know you want a gamma, right? Like you just need a function with the right constraints. But where it's called gamma or anything else, people don't really care. What I'd love to see is more automated prior sensitivity analysis. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, we all say, oh, yeah, we should, you know, we should do it, but it's really tedious to do. But now with, you know, frameworks like PyMC, uh, like NumPyro, like, you know, all the automatic differentiation being entirely automated, I mean, couldn't we have this done automatically and see how much we depend on the, the shape of our priors and on the, you know, the prime parameters that we have put there? And of course, how do you do that properly without double dipping in your data, but doing it in, a, in an iterative fashion? It's, yeah, we have the tools for Bayesian inference have also benefited massively from the, the, the growth of you know, neural nets, for example, and interest in neural nets. And that, that has led to the development of toolboxes for tensor calculus that are then widely used in PyMC and Ampyro and makes it m more easy than ever to be a statistician modeler that you don't have to code your own sampler anymore. You're actually much better off using one of the existing ones, which, which are getting extremely, extremely efficient. Yeah, we continue talking about that, but time is running by and I want to get your, your thoughts about something that you're also very passionate about, which is teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, well, what motivates that, that passion first and also what are the most important skills that you are trying to instill in your students? So regrettably, I'm not teaching much these days anymore. My uh, professorship, uh, honorary professorship at UCL is, uh, is more on the research side. I do a lot of mentoring, though, of uh, young researchers and, uh, you know, through when I work with them at Amnesty or through other different projects. And, well... It's mostly a matter of paying it forward. You know, I've been really lucky to find multiple professors along the way who introduced me to algorithmics, who introduced me to, who believed in me and spent way more time with me than they, you know, ever could have afforded, really. I mean, infinitely grateful. And, and the best way, you know, I can't thank them enough, but I can make sure that the next generation after us benefits from the same. So that there's a, there's a big matter there. And it's just, I like to transmit the passion I like to, you know, that they see the, see the, the, the light up of, oh, yeah, that is a really nice trick, you know, the realization on that. That's something I, I, you know, I really enjoy. Yeah, and I definitely agree, like, having passionate professors is one of the best things that can happen to you, you know, like, having that passion inside you really, really helps people will get more passionate about that and see that. Again, as I always say, science is done by people, and it's inherently human contrary to like what a lot of people <laughs> tell you and think so yeah like that's awesome and so talking about people yeah i was asking you like what are what are the main skills that you're trying to instill in your students ability to go and fetch information from multiple different sources multiple different angles really quickly get to the core of it. I mean, I always remember when my, my PhD advisor just took a paper and scanned through it in 30 seconds to get the point because he was just jumping from equation to equation and ignoring the text around. And 
Well, that seemed like, like, wow, what happened there? But it's mostly because, you know, he had read tons of papers in the domains and knew how to read really quickly in that sense, in the sense of parsing the content, extracting the information really quickly. And when you get to do that and, you know, not being intimidated by X or Y paper or not being over-focused on one single paper, or one, you know, go cross-reference the document, the, you know, the information from different angles. And that is how you get, you know, you get to really learn by yourself then. Uh, you know, I can, as a teacher, I can show you that some things exist. I introduce you to a field, but, you know, up to you to run into it and go completely wild exploring it. And if you know how to quickly scan for information, quickly find, then you, you, you'll run all the fastest and explore all the deeper. For sure, that, that would have impressed me too, like going through a paper in 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> yeah, I was blown away, but yeah. It's... And then funnily enough, just a couple of years ago, someone sent me a paper and I was like, okay, yeah, no, I quickly scanned the read. And I was like, yeah, no, it's, it's worth digging into it deeper. So how did you assess a paper in 30 seconds? No, I didn't read it entirely in 30 seconds. Nor did I understand it in 30 seconds. But by then, you know, you know enough to realize, okay, is this good quality? Does it have the different markings? Of, okay, it looks like someone who knows what they're doing. Worth digging into it. And it's when uh, she told me, well, how'd, how'd you do that? I remember that professor. And it's just, you know, it's just a skill that you acquire really quickly, even during a PhD or when you, you know, you, you just, just go and dive and scan, learn to scan, see enough of them and it'll, it'll come pretty quickly. If we go a bit more practical, like, do you have any practical advice for, like, on what to do and what not to do for people who would like to start a career in, in this field of AI, machine learning or, or Bayesian stance? I would go for, well, <laughs> there's many, I don't want to sound like an old fart. And honestly, the field is very different <laughs> now than when I started, you know, when I started, Machine learning conferences were 400 people. Now we have 20,000 attendees and a lottery to be able to get in. My advice might be somewhat old school in that sense. I think generally I find a lot. I find it extremely good for people who like to experiment by themselves a lot. It's something that you can do in any computational angle. You know, you try it, you see if it crashes. That is much harder to do in, say, theory improving, where well, there's well, actually, now there are some ways to verify automatically proof, but they're not within easy reach. So you don't see your algorithm crashing there live. So a lot of experimenting by yourself or with friends, but, you know, actually coding it. A lot of serendipity in that field. The other thing is that with statistics and with machine learning, there are so many different places to apply it that you will be bound to find places if you let the serendipity happen. I mean, how did I get to work with Amnesty? Hey, a friend told me, hey, I hear you're leaving DeepMind and that you wanted to work with NGOs. There's a meetup on Tuesday happening with some NGO that's presenting. You should maybe go have a look. And wow, there was Milena Marin from Amnesty, head of the Decoders project there, their crowdsourcing, was presenting what they do. And I realized, oh, you've got data. You have an expert that has trained a crowd to do a task. Maybe the crowd can train a neural net. Maybe I can help. I've got time and skills. So just went to chat with her at the end. Like, Serendipity plays a, a huge role. Now, I say that, but I realize that I'm extremely privileged to, well, I live in a big city. I'm a white male in my 30s. I had time at that moment, you know, all conditions that make my advice possibly not as general as I wish it could be. But yeah, the, the core is, you know, try these methods by yourself. Don't hesitate to go and make it crash and get information, you know, search for information everywhere. Just read a lot, play a lot with it. That would be... Uh, and don't hesitate to ask. I mean, the other thing, well, actually, you know, here's, here's a one key advice, actually, is 
don't be impressed. Remember that the person in front of you who seems like a non-professor who knows a lot of stuff or a super expert actually probably deep down feels a very strong dose of imposter syndrome. Or if they, if they don't, it might be because they... Let me put it this way. Some, having imposter syndrome for me is a mark of someone who actually knows what they're doing because that also means that they know that there's a lot they don't know. And so, yeah, realize that the person you're, you're seeing speaking, they're speaking on their topic of choice and they're the precise expert. But when they hear you speaking about what you do, they're probably equally lost. Or they were when, you know, they were at, at your stage. So don't hesitate to go and speak and find the people. Some will, you know, some will brush you off. Some will actually really want to share their knowledge and will remember being in your shoes. And yeah, go for that. And I completely agree. And that totally resonates with me. And that's actually an advice that I give all the time to people. That's what I did. And I think it's very, both very efficient and also very rewarding. The one thing I would say, though, is that if you are um, an airplane pilot aspiring to be an airplane pilot, just go for it and don't be afraid to make it crash is not a good career advice. Please do not do that. <laughs> well, and that's why, you know, you experiment in, you know, this, the same way there's all this discussion again about social impact around move fast and break things, which that's why you want to make sure where you apply it exactly. So know that you're in training. Pick the place where you, where you crash. Do that on the simulator. <laughs> okay, so yeah, actually I'm curious. This is a, a topic I, I really love talking about and about science communication and how to, like, how to help the general public understand more about um, scientific methods. And it seems like you do that a lot. So... I'm curious from your experience, what do you think are the best ways to communicate about science and scientific reasoning? Well, I have no clue what the best way is. There are masterful, you know, presenters of, of science out there. I'm thinking Davy Sridhar, for example, an epidemiologist in the UK during, uh, during COVID made a masterful example of communicating. You look at David Spiegelhalter, a big Bayesian statistician himself, with well, he's professor of the understanding of it. He's amazing. He's just, and you know, he's one of the best scientific communicators I've ever met. So I don't know that I have the best way. What I do have is seen a few things that work when I presented them, which is first, the passion. It's really about that. Be passionate. Tell a story that you feel strongly about. Don't, you know, I used to do slides with a lot of math in it and a lot of equations. And, you know, as a junior, I felt like, oh, I need to impress. I need to really impress people with all my equations too, so that they can see that I'm, that I know what I'm doing. Well, actually now these days, my slides are mostly pictures at this stage because I'm trying to, to get their attention, to get the audience attention, to make them want to follow what is being, what is being said, to feel committed to, to what I'm trying to explain. When you think about it, the measure of uncertainty, the measure of risks, these are deeply fascinating topics and things that everyone, you know, realizes. You cross the street. Well, if it's a busy street, I'm going to check twice before crossing. If, you know, it's pretty quiet, I'm, okay, I'm not going to check, you know, my student. So this is something people can really relate to. We, we, we all do that deeply. If I present it in the, in, the, in the way of math, I need the math to make sure of what I'm doing. I need the mass to build it, but to communicate it, mm -hmm. I almost need to, you know, if I tell them, oh, there's a lot of math there, they're going to be scared. Whereas, no, there's a lot, the math formulates, formalizes intuition. Some of the best, even scientific tools I've went through had this professor who made you go through these really intricate formulas as if they were nothing. 
and you went through the talk with him, you're like, yeah, I followed every step. Well, you, re- you went home, you realized, well, I think he skipped a few that I really can't figure out. But at the moment, it was, it, it, it was really clear. So, and when it's for, for general audience, don't dumb it down. Because people, you know, know if you're, if you're being dumb, you, you're not carrying the, the, the real intent. But share the passion and share the story. Storytelling is extremely important there. And that's what you want to get through. And if someone wants a mathematical detail and is curious to know more, you know, say, open the door at the end. Say, yeah, I'm really always happy to discuss about the, the more technical details and point you in the right directions. But you want, you want, you need that story first and foremost. And for that, you know, capture the audience by being passionate. And it, they'll forgive any blunder you might make or any imperfection in your slide or whatnot, you know, go for the passion. Completely agree. And uh, that's something I, I talked about already quite a lot on the podcast, so I'm not going <laughs> to reiterate. <laughs> but yeah, like for people... Episode 50 was with David Bigelhalter. So I put that in the show notes if you want to listen or re-listen to it. Also in episode 67, David Kipping was here. He has a fantastic YouTube channel about astrophysics and cosmology and probability of life in the universe, things like that. And the episode was, was really awesome. So I, I put that in the show notes also because we talked about exactly that kind of things like basically telling a story about science and making sure that people know that it's it's a human story. And it's not a, something that comes out of nowhere with just dry equations. Okay, so before calling it a show, I am asking you the, the last two questions that I ask everybody at the end of the show. I would actually pick your brain about one last question, which is, what do you think are the biggest hurdles right now in the Bayesian workflow, especially in your field? But like, what do you think is yeah something that could be done differently and probably better in the Bayesian work? For the ba- I guess it depends where you apply it. You know, if you apply it to say larger weight models, there well, there is a challenge of how do you make Bayes work at such scales which is you know pretty tricky and again there's a very strong field of Bayesian deep learning that there and that has many different ideas and some of these ideas i mean there was a really great paper by uh, balaji lamakrishna i'm sorry balaji i'm butchering your last name for example looking at different ways to do ensembling and getting a measure of uncertainty without being bayesian at all by purely you know sampling training your neural nets different times under certain assumptions on the loss function, it has to be a proper scoring function and performing really well. And it's very simple. And he says, oh, we're getting uncertainty without Bayesian being Bayesian. I don't care. I want the uncertainty, whether we call it Bayesian or not. I want this probabilistic thinking. Right now, there's a massive hurdle because this kind of, of quantization of risk is, is not quite there, really, and not done routinely. And uh, so that I think that is a big, a big hurdle there, to be honest. Then obviously there is a challenge that the community is also somewhat different. In, in deep learning, there's a huge community that came from computer science. Many statistics department have, okay, I'm, I'm not going to make friends here, but I've missed the boat on machine learning and, uh, oh no, we're more econometrics or we're more, you know, classical statistics. Or, and yes, because these are methods that work when you are in massive engineering domain. There is this gap between the departments and the backgrounds, which if we can resolve it, is going to, to, to really help. I mean, at UCL, we, we used to have the, the CSML, Computer Science and Machine Learning grouping, which involved both the Computer Science Department, the Statistics Department, 
and the, the Gatsby Neuroscience Unit, which is a fantastic machine learning lab. Now, sadly, the, the CSML is not super active these days, but I think it was a fantastic way to, to bring these different notions together. And with the nature of deep learning, it's very easy to go and experiment and be empirical. It's harder to get the, 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 the theory that goes with because we can't even know how to analyze these, uh, these behaviors. You know, MCMC, okay, you pick up your copy of the main and Tweedy book, 1991, on the behavior of Markov chains, and then you pick the book by Christian Robert, which applies this to MCMC, and okay, you've got a, a solid understanding. Not so much in deep learning. That's where there, there, there is a gap, which is a challenge for applying Bayesian workflow in deep learning at the moment. Okay, yeah, yeah. Definitely interesting. And then can also refer people to episode 68 with Kevin Murphy. Kevin Murphy. Oh, yes. Oh, Kevin's book is awesome. But the only problem is that his book is now three volumes, uh, which is making it a, a lot of time to read, but I, I keep going back to it all the time. Oh, it's cool to show you. You've been already very generous with, with your time, Julian. It's been a real but pleasure. Before that, as usual, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest <laughs> at the end of the show. So if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? I'm, I'm, full spoiler, I'm really glad you sent me the question yesterday night so I could have a think. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, this... Well, I used to work at DeepMind, you know, where the idea was solve intelligence. And then once you solve that, you can solve everything else. I've moved a little further away from that because I see tech now less so as a solution but to quote uh, Kentaro Toyama, uh, a professor in well, the use of tech for development and for, for good, tech is not a solution, it's just a magnifier of human, human forces. So what I would really want, the problem I would really try to solve with unlimited resources and unlimited time would be how to get more empathy and to get people to feel safer, to express empathy and encourage empathy and drive crowds toward being more empathetic to each other. Because once we have that, we change the human forces and then, okay, all tech now can really, really help us rather than destroying us. And second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? Well. I did not quite think about the fictional part. First, I don't know whether I would make it a dinner of ju or just being able to follow them unseen while they work, to see how they work and observe them, you know, in <laughs> kind of what like they a do stalker. best. <laughs> well, yeah, that didn't come up as I I would say a ghost, a ghost. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's less creepy for sure. Yeah, let's talk all the big scientists. No, I mean, really, <laughs> personal childhood hero, Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, yeah. To ask him, you know, how it failed to work across so many different fields and to have that freedom and to carve that freedom. These days, it's getting much harder because for an academic career, you need to be super specialized about something. Heck, even for an industrial career, you need to be, the what are you the go-to guy for is a question you see in, say, Google performance review for promotion or used to see when I was there. Now, I really hate that. I really, I love to work on multiple things, statistics, machine learnings, you know, I work in these precisely because they can be helpful in so many different things. Uh, the startup I'm advising, Shift lab we're trying to you know we're taking that that sense too we're hiring by the way so hit me but the real thing here is i'm lucky right now to have built a, a job for myself where i can work on these many many different fields i want to see to see more of that and i'd love to you know speak with a scientist like da vinci who's been influenced and exploring in so many domains great choice and you would probably have the dinner or the stalking happening in florence rome yeah. I mean, that does sound super cool. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
OK, well, Julien, merci beaucoup. Thanks a lot. That was, Thank that you. was really cool. I loved it because we were able to talk about a lot of different topics, just as Leonardo da Vinci would have done. So I think, <laughs> I think we're pretty much on our way here. As usual, I, I put resources. <laughs> Don't ask me to paint anything. Yeah. Well, you can ask a stable diffusion. There we go. Problem solved. By the way, I just, you'll see on Twitter, I just posted an image. I asked uh, stable diffusion with the prompt Alexandre, Julien, and Iron Man recording a podcast in space. <laughs> so you can't you wait see to see that on Twitter. I thank you. I put the tweet in the show notes because that. I think it's worth uh, seeing it. And so, yeah, as usual, I put resources and a link to our website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Julien, for taking the time and being on this show. Thank you for having me and thanks for everyone to listening. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbaystats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation. Yeah.